Welcome, and thank you for joining this podcast brought to you by the American Heart Association. The Association's Digital Digest series features a range of podcasts and videos focused on the latest resuscitation science topics. Hi there, my name is Dr. Camilla Sasson, and I serve as the Vice President for Science and Innovation at the American Heart Association in Healthcare Business Solutions Group. And today I am very excited to be able to bring to you two of my co-authors on the new presidential advisory that has just come out, Dr. Cheryl Chow and Dr. Wilson Compton. So I'm going to go ahead and let you both introduce yourself, Dr. Chow. Thank you, Camilla. So I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice at Western University of Health Sciences in Pomona, and I'm very excited to be here on this podcast. So thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Cheryl. And Dr. Compton? Well, thank you, Camilla, and thank you, Cheryl. It's my pleasure to join you today on this podcast. By background, I'm an addiction psychiatrist, and I'm the deputy director at the National Institute on Drug Abuse, and it's been my pleasure to work with you all on this important presidential advisory. Excellent. Well, I think right now is a great time for us to really be bringing this to the forefront. We know that we're in the midst of an opioid epidemic, really like one that we have not seen. We've been doing, I think, really well for a a few years now in terms of seeing a decline in opioid use as well as opioid deaths as well, but obviously things have changed. So Cheryl, can you tell us a little bit about why the opioid epidemic is so important right now? That's a great question, Camilla, and thank you for asking that question. So as you mentioned before, opioid overdose is a leading cause of injury-related deaths in around the range of 25 to 54-year-olds in the United States. And more recently, death rates have continued to rise. So looking at all the drug-related deaths, roughly two out of three are related to opioid overdose. So opioid overdose um, represents the majority of drug-related deaths. And just to provide some perspective, the odds of someone dying from an accidental opioid overdose are in fact higher than that of dying in a car accident. So this really illustrates the fact that opioid deaths are very common. And the timing of this paper, I believe, is critically important, given that, you know, the crisis that exists today. And our advisory paper really seeks to improve education and training for the public and healthcare professionals. And it focuses on two key issues. First, to address how to manage pain and opioid overdose in patients with cardiovascular disease and stroke, and also to raise awareness about opioid use disorder. And I think those are such important topics. And I know the NIH and other federal and state entities have, have focused on this, Wilson, for a very long time. Now, how has this approach had to change over the course of the last year and a half? I know we've been in the midst of a global pandemic, so our entire worlds have, have changed. Um, but how have we had to address this opioid epidemic differently? Well, some of the changes have been emerging over a slightly longer period of time than just the last year and a half. And so over the last several years, as we've seen the overdose crisis shift from a purely prescription opioids with some heroin issues to an issue where prescription opioids play a key role, but we also have a major role for the synthetic opioids other than methadone. That's a way of describing fentanyl and related compounds, which are so toxic when used by drug users in the community and have been responsible for so many thousands of deaths in recent years. We've also come to recognize that it's not just an issue of opioids, but it's really about polydrugs or multiple substances. 
it's stimulants as well as opioids. By the time persons are using these substances to such a degree that puts them at risk of overdose, they might also be drinking alcohol, smoking cigarettes, using marijuana. And so it's the constellation and multiple substances that may create these very high risk situations. I know, especially working in the emergency department, I see a lot of folks now who are coming in, as you had mentioned, not just with one substance use disorder, but multiple substances as well. You know, and I think that really brings to mind, you know, a lot of these these things have been around for a very long time. Opioids have been around since the 1700s, but haven't really become a national crisis until recently. Michelle, can you tell us a little bit about what your thoughts are around how have we gotten to here? Thank you for that, because it, it has a very interesting history. And as you mentioned, since the 1700s, prescription opioids have been used to treat pain. And it wasn't really until the 1980s. And uh, the New England Journal of Medicine published a letter which included observations of patients receiving opioids in the inpatient setting. And in this letter, the author concluded that the development of addiction was rare in patients with no history of addiction. So this letter became rapidly cited as evidence that addiction was an exaggerated fear. And this was clearly a misrepresentation, but it was also combined with aggressive pharmaceutical marketing and also the development of pain management standards in hospitalized patients. And this combination really just gave rise to the opioid epidemic and what we currently have today. I know, you know, we've been sort of measured at some point on the kind of the fifth vital sign, right, was pain for many years. And I think for a lot of us as clinicians, that really changed the way we thought about pain. In some ways, it was nice because it gave us the ability to really address people's pain. But in some other ways, too, it may have actually fed into this opioid crisis as well. Now, I know, Wilson, the, the NIH and other federal entities have really been looking at this for a long time, as you had mentioned, what are some of those research areas that still need to be addressed? I feel like we can't fix the problem until likely we have some additional answers. Well, of course, one of the key answers and one of the key questions is how do we treat pain without resorting to addictive substances? How can we successfully treat pain in major injuries, during surgery, during outpatient care for so many millions of people that suffer from both acute and chronic pain? without resorting to something that may have long-term consequences like the opioids have turned out to? Well, that's a major research question and one where we're very pleased that Congress has allocated significant funds through our program called HEAL, that's Helping End Addiction Long-Term, to help us with a great deal of funding on understanding the basic mechanisms of pain and the transition from acute to chronic pain, as well as to develop new treatments that might be less problematic than the opioids have been over the decades. I'd also say a recent issue has been to understand the impacts of some of the changes to healthcare delivery during the last year and a half. Certainly during the COVID pandemic, we've seen major shifts to our healthcare delivery, increases in use of telemedicine, increased access to buprenorphine and methadone through lessening of some of the regulations. Well, has that helped people? Has that harmed in terms of potentially greater diversion? These are very important immediate research questions that we're undertaking right now. Well, and I think those are so important because again, oftentimes you can't get somebody off of opioids until you really understand you know, what brought them there. And oftentimes that's chronic pain or even acute pain that becomes chronic as well. Now I know, Cheryl, in the presidential advisory, we speak to specific concerns from a cardiovascular perspective as well. 
Can you just describe some of those things that our healthcare professionals should be thinking about from their you know, own prescribing patterns to think, how does this not just impact a person's pain, but what other effects can opioids specifically have and or even opioid use disorder? I think you bring up an important point because education and training for pain management is, is clearly needed, even with cardiologists or those that may handle pain management on the side, for example. And one important issue to address is really trying to selectively use morphine in moderation or even non-opioid alternatives such as acetaminophen and aspirin. And also the AHA has updated guidelines available on how to provide basic life support for a suspected opioid overdose. So these are all discussed in our advisory paper. When I know there's also some controversy around the use of NSAIDs for patients who have cardiovascular disease, is this a prescribed prescription that is helpful or potentially harmful for these patients? Is it okay for our healthcare professionals to still think about non-opioid alternatives for those patients who maybe have come out of cardiac surgeries or who have had procedures done and have pain? Yeah, one of the issues surrounding NSAID is really giving these medications in cardiovascular patients. Often they have uh, renal insufficiency. There's a lot of other deleterious effects in acute coronary syndrome. And also in combination with an ACE inhibitor, it can actually worsen renal function. So most of the patients with cardiovascular disease are on some type of ACE inhibitor or an ARNI or an ARB. So we need to use NSAIDs judiciously. Generally, NSAIDs are not recommended in the cardiovascular population. And I think, Wilson, that brings me to, you know, again, as a ER doc, you know, so what do we do, right? What are some of the practical things that our healthcare professionals can do right now as they work with patients, both with pain and opioid use disorder or dependence? Well, as Cheryl pointed out, the first step will be helping people avoid going down this pathway to begin with. So doing what we can to prevent the onset of opioid use disorder by minimizing the unnecessary use of opioids. Now, Notice that I use the word unnecessary because there are many clinical conditions where they are absolutely necessary and sometimes for an extended period of time. So how can we monitor those patients carefully? We can use screening systems, whether that's uh, questionnaire screening as well as urine drug testing to assess use of the prescribed substances as well as potentially use of other substances that might be quite risky for that patient. I would also suggest that one of the key issues that clinicians need to pay attention to is not discontinuing the opioids abruptly. There has been a tendency to see the use of opioids as the enemy and as the serious issue. Well, while that we want to encourage people to avoid unnecessary starting of patients on these medications, the discontinuation is a lengthy and slow process. And without that careful discontinuation and tapering, uh, patients can have significant harms, whether that's a recurrence of their underlying painful condition or the very serious withdrawal symptoms that they may experience. And I think that destigmatization too of our patients and being able to kind of talk to them about their opioid use and being able to offer alternative options, whether that's even just, you know, different treatments for pain like CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy or acupressure, acupuncture, but then also thinking about that, 
you know, how do we safely taper down those medications? I think that's such an important piece of this puzzle as well, because again, we see a lot of the deleterious effects of, of oh gosh, you know, look, this pe- person came in with pain. We said that we needed to stop all their opioids and then they end up potentially going to the streets to use as well, right? So oftentimes that can happen. So I do think it's important for our healthcare professionals to think about, you know, what are those ways, just as you had mentioned, Wilson and Cheryl, about really thinking, you know, how do we do this in a way that is not going to harm our patients, but hopefully safely gets them to be able to hopefully get off of the opioids and hopefully get into a position in which they can use other medications or other options for treatment as well. Camilla, I would also encourage healthcare professionals to feel some of the excitement and reward that it comes from discovering what's actually going on with a patient. And so when you discover that somebody has an underlying opioid use disorder, instead of seeing that as a problem or something to be discouraged about, to feel very pleased that you've discovered something that has a potential life-saving treatment and make sure that you provide the treatment or arrange for their care with other professionals, such as the addiction specialists that may exist in your community. And I know that, you know, being able to provide medications like buprenorphine and others have been a focus for um, not just the NIH, but even just all throughout the nation in terms of trying to help patients come off of opioids and, and to have alternative options in terms of being able to manage their pain as well. So um, I just want to open this up. I know we're, we're running out of time. So I want to say thank you both for joining us. Any final thoughts? I just think that the timing of this paper is extremely critical given the rise of opioid use disorder and um, deaths related to opioid overdose. And this paper is extremely important. I recommend everyone take a read. And, uh, you know, as mentioned, it discusses uh, pain management and alternatives for pain and different approaches as well, and also opioid use disorder. So there's a lot discussed in this paper. I just want to amplify that by reminding us that overdose deaths have increased some 30% from 2019 through the end of 2020 or early 2021. So this issue of overdose deaths continues to be an increasing problem in the United States. And it's so exciting and important that an organization like the American Heart Association used the power of its membership and its persuasive abilities to help all of the healthcare professionals in our country come together to address this national crisis. So I just want to say thank you once again to uh, Dr. Cheryl Chow, who was our leader and chair on this presidential advisory. So thank you so much for your leadership. And Dr. Compton, really appreciate all of the thoughts that you've brought from both the NIH perspective, but also just from kind of the global perspective of just how important opioid use is in this country and how important it is to use our voices collectively um, to make sure that we can really impact the opioid epidemic that is really hitting our country hard right now. So thank you so much again for your time and really appreciate both of you and all of the hard work that you've done to help us create this presidential advisory. Thank you. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Heart Association and the American Stroke Association. For transcripts of this podcast and more information about resuscitation science, please visit cpr.heart.org or engage with us via social media using hashtag ECC Digital Digest.